Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to the Weekly Grill. Today on the Grill for Beef Central, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the microphone the CEO of one of Australia's leading pastoral companies. A brief description would include nine properties across Australia of more than three and a half million hectares, plus interest in Indonesia, a carrying capacity of 300,000 head. It's a big business. Riding point for the consolidated pastoral company, CPC as it's widely known, is Troy Setter. Troy, welcome. You're again on the grill with Beef Central. Great to be back on the grill with you, Kerry, and part of Beef Central. Troy, just uh, checking recent history of the beef industry, I can't recognise a time when so much is going on at all levels. Is it fair to say these are challenging times in so many areas for the beef cattle industry? Yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that absolutely everyone, whether it's your producers, feedlotters, processors, meat traders, marketers, retailers, restaurants, everyone's got some headwinds at the moment, and uh, and it's very dif- difficult. But I think the other thing too is is just so many other distractions and and other issues that we're all dealing with day to day, whether it's government red red and green tape or whether it's ESG or inflation costs, um, a lot more stakeholders interested in what we're doing as an industry. It's uh, it's a very, very busy time and uh, and very challenging for a lot of people. I've ticked off many of the challenges uh, you've mentioned, and of course, they're all connected, aren't they? Is there any single issue which uh, needs faster attention more than any other, do you think? Look, I think everyone's been caught by surprise that the cattle price fell so much, and so did the meat price. I think everyone was aware that and eyes wide open last year that we would see some you know, some declines, but the, the speed of the fall in both cattle and meat price and the lacklustre demand from some of our key international markets as they chew through uh, large amounts of stock or deal with inflation challenges is plus the you know, the, the threat of a El Nino uh, coming um, has uh, has really spooked everyone. I want to talk about those issues later on, but I'll go first to biosecurity. The FMD issue appears, at least where I sit, to have slipped off the radar somewhat. You have properties across the north. Is CPC doing anything about FMD on what might be called a just-in-case basis? Yeah, we are. I think FMD and, and LSD are, are not as front as mind this year as what they were last year, but the, the threat and the risk hasn't gone away and, and Indonesia and many other countries are still battling with both diseases. For us at CPC, we're, we're still ready. We've done some practice scenarios on what, what would happen. We've, uh, we've got kits on, on property for if we do have a, uh, have an incident so that people don't have to move and, and that we can contain livestock and we're very, uh, very prepared and, and also still maintaining very strict biosecurity. I came back from Indonesia just over a week ago and, and, and still wouldn't go out to the properties, even though I left all my clothes and things in Indonesia with very strict rules on, on having adequate time between, uh, being offshore and, and going onto property. That might apply to you, but I'm certain it doesn't apply to everybody. I'm thinking about people going into the south, especially getting off the plane in Melbourne and going onto a property at Ballarat or somewhere like that. 
Yeah, there's certainly risk there of, uh, of people coming from, uh, from from anywhere in the world, but particularly yeah. Southeast Asia and, and yeah, being an hour from airport to farm and uh, and spreading it. And that's something that everyone is responsible for taking seriously. Are you aware of any master plan to cope with any outbreak of FMD or something maybe constructed by perhaps CSIRO or someone like that? Is there a master plan afoot? Yeah, look, we've got the the Ausvet plan. That's that's very clear in terms of what happens if there is a, a suspected or, or actual uh, case of foot and foot and mouth or lumpy skin in Australia. An immediate standstill of all livestock movements for a couple of days and uh, and rapid testing. Australia through CSIRO and the Australian Centre for Disease uh, Preparedness have Australia now has a testing capacity in country to test for foot and mouth and lumpy skin disease rapidly, which we didn't have pre-Indonesia getting foot and mouth and lumpy skin. So we're, we're a lot better prepared than what we were. And then uh, several of those plans like Ausvet Plan and Yadra have been tested and checked by industry. But I think it's something that we need to continue to to simulate and, and check and, and make sure that we are ready to uh, to stop the spread of highly contagious diseases very, very quickly. As you've mentioned, CPC is in something of a unique position with FMD. You have interest in Indonesia and including feedlots, and you do work closely with local producers up there. What has FMD done to the Indonesian beef industry? Look, foot and mouth is, is, and lumpy skin have really caused some significant damage to the Indonesian livestock industry and to local farmers. We've helped local farmers with many, many thousand vaccinations for foot and mouth and, and lumpy skin. Uh, the Indonesian government, with help from the Australian government, is is very much getting into foot and mouth vaccination. LSD has been a bit slower. Um, but, you know, you've seen local farmers who maybe have one to three cows as part of their beef business and a big part of the family wealth, and that animal has or animals have suffered foot and mouth, and, and a lot of them have been slaughtered. There's no formal numbers yet out of Indonesia, um, but we've certainly seen in the market now for the last 12 months cattle with foot and mouth or at risk of foot and mouth and lumpy skin um, being processed a lot earlier than normal. Very large as a dairy cattle have been killed off in, in Indonesia and uh, the overall cattle herd has, has been severely impacted and we're still seeing cattle coming onto the market for you know, what I would call emergency slaughter um, right across the country. And that's that's caused some challenges for Australia and demand for live export cattle. As there's plenty of local cattle still in the market, but it's really been painful for local farmers in Indonesia who've lost uh, some of their uh, most valuable assets, which is their cattle. Because FMD doesn't kill Anybody who meets the meat, they are happy to sell the meat into the wet markets there, aren't they? Yes, the, the meat can still enter the human food supply chain and it's safe for, for human consumption. But usually the, the animals that are being processed aren't finished animals, they're, they're breeders or young animals and uh, so there's a lot less meat off them and that animal doesn't get to its full capacity and, and overall over time it'll reduce Indonesia's uh, beef production capacity as well as sheep and goat and pork production as well. Those those smaller animals are also being impacted pretty heavily. Now you've mentioned LSD, the other disease acronym, lumpy skin disease. Given it travels on the wind, are you still of the view that it's inevitable that it will come into Australia, especially across the north? Look, there's some work done for the Australian government um, at the end of last year and announced at the start of this year that the risk of LSD blowing into Australia is considerably lower than first thought. It's, it's still possible. Um, what we've seen in Indonesia and other parts of the world is region to region and country to country, 
lumpy skin gets moved by sick animals and then within a region or, or within a you know, farmer group, insects move the disease around. We're, we're seeing now that and learning that lumpy skin takes multiple bites from multiple insects that are infected onto onto animals to spread the disease so that the risk is still there that the insects could be blown into Australia but we've learned over the last six or seven months Kerry that the risk is is much lower that doesn't mean we we should you know drop our guard at all in Australia because the the, the possibility is still there well that's good news but do we have a stockpile of LSD vaccine uh, not in Australia, no. We we can't have foot and mouth or lumpy skin vaccine in Australia. If if we do, then we risk our free status. So the foot and mouth does lumpy, uh, disease vaccine is stored in the in uh, in the UK, and then the LSD vaccine is uh, is held in in other countries. So if anything breaks out, will you have to order the jet, <clears throat> go and get it, and bring it back? I guess. Absolutely. The first line of defence, if it's a small outbreak, is to destroy animals. Yes. Um, and then the second line would be we'd, we'd vaccinate if it gets starts to get out of control. And while we're talking about the North Troy, the uh, the live trade, it's been struggling for a while now. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel here? Have we seen the bottom yet? Look, I think we're seeing a bottom in Queensland today at about you know, out of Townsville, about two ninety three dollars for. For steers and and Darwin probably similar three dollars three ten there there might be a few downs the north is still fairly destocked you know, there's a lot of young cattle for the last two years have gone down south to help with the restock and and the grow out down there so it, actually northern Australia is quite short of steers there's heifers are pretty cheap at the moment we're starting to see some you know, some demand increase from Indonesia. But they're certainly struggling there with you know, high feed costs, some lacklustre demand from consumers, uh, inflation, sheep, Indian buffalo being dumped in the market. And, and a lot of the feedlots suffered from foot and mouth and lumpy skin infections. And Indonesia didn't have the COVID stimulus that a lot of other countries had. So it's slow. I think long term, the market's still really positive, but it, it's we're still in for another tough couple of months. Will the trade ever get back to the heady days of 700,000 going straight to Indonesia, do you think? I think it can. Um, I think absolutely it can, but there's some, some hurdles to to get over. We've, we now face more competition with Indian buffalo. We face more competition domestically in Australia with meat processors and, and feedlots, which is a positive thing. Uh, Vietnam you know, has the capacity when it's, when it's going and the economics are right for several hundred thousand head a year, so... Indonesia to go over five, six hundred thousand head a year is going to have to be very, uh, very competitive. Time for a break on the grill. Our guest today, Troy Setter, CEO of CPC. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinogard. Available from your local vet today. 
For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. We're back on the grill with Troy Setter, the Consolidated Pastoral Company's Chief Executive Officer. There's, a, there's absolutely no evidence for this, what I'm about to mention, but there's certainly a rising volume of chatter about federal government bans on the live trade. Uh, not soon, not tomorrow, but as part of an ongoing policy about live exports of animals. Do you hear that chatter? And if so, what can be done about it? I do hear industry chatter, to be brutally honest, but I've heard the Agricultural Minister... Murray Watt and, and our Prime Minister say on numerous occasions publicly that uh, the live cattle trade is safe, um, they support the live cattle trade, they see its full value and they see the social value that it has to Northern Australia and also and Southern Australia and also the, the links that it has in uh, Southeast Asia and the Middle East in particular and that they uh, are supporters of the live trade, they continue to invest in the market. I travelled with uh, Minister Watt to Indonesia last year and uh, and he was a, a big supporter and continually says he's a supporter and so does Albanese, our Prime Minister. So um, that's all I can, all we can go off, Kerry. Yes, it's good news to hear that, but we'll watch, watch and wait and see with some interest, I yes. suspect, given what's happened in Western Australia. Now, Here's something I'm quite keen on hearing your views on, the, the fairly recent development. I guess some people have been doing it for a couple of years. With long-term ramifications, the increasingly popular practice of using Wagyu bulls over Brahmin females, there, there are significant pluses here, aren't there? Yeah, there, there are. And, and we've been using Wagyu bulls for a few years now in our Northern Territory uh, operations and then Wagyu cross bulls in, in the Kimberley and, and in North Queensland. We've certainly done it for fertility, um, put Wagyu in, and, and not every Wagyu bull is skinny and, and a wiry frame and, and very high marbling. We've got some very, very well-shaped Wagyu bulls, particularly some of the new polled Wagyu genetics. This year on first round in the Northern Territory for us, our yearling heifer PDIC rates, and getting yearling heifers to be pregnant in the Northern Territory is, is a big challenge. Most people usually carved at three, and we're carving at two now as much as possible. Our Wagyu cross Brahmin heifers had a 93% PDIC rate, and our Brahmin, pure Brahmin heifers had a 62% PDIC rate for a two-year-old carver. So... It's good, you know, 62% is not bad for Brahmins, but 93% for a Brahmin cross Wagyu is great. We're seeing a really high rebreed rate uh, in those females. Uh, the Wagyu fixes up some of the other issues that some of the tropical cattle have in northern Australia. And then, you know, an added bonus as well as the fertility is uh, is some more market flexibility for, for us. So it's part of improving our productivity. Indeed. Tell me, the, one of the issues you've overcome, I understand, you're using DNA testing to test the the, uh, the cars which might get the best hybrid vigour. Is that how, what's done? Yeah, we're using genomic testing through our studs. So we, we breed the vast majority of our own bulls and we're using uh, genomic testing there for, uh, for EBVs and, and predicting uh, performance. But we've also been using it now in our commercial herd and that'll start to ramp up more over the next uh, the next couple of years. But a, a good example was that last year on 
uh, one of our properties in central Queensland, we sorted through a couple of thousand Angus females there that were commercial using DNA genomic testing and were able to prioritise fertility and growth pattern and uh, and productivity, puberty and, and things like that that are really hard to measure rapidly in the in the yards. And uh, and then we did a you know, match that with visual selection and that's that's been working really well. And then yeah, some of the genomic predictions and with artificial breeding we've been using quite well with some of our peers including Nimblewimber and it's been uh, it's been really powerful and it's just going to get more and more powerful Kerry. Some of those F1s would might be even attractive for feedlots I suspect would they? Yeah absolutely we've fed them in both Indonesia and in Australia in Indonesia we haven't pushed too many of them out to their you know, full marbling potential and they've gone through with short fed cattle and then some of our Wagyu Brahmin crosses have gone to multiple feedlots in Queensland and northern New South Wales and some have been fed as 100-day cattle and then some have been taken out to near 200 days to, to get a, a good average uh, marble score. So there, there's a lot of flexibility there. Um, there's a little bit of growth uh, loss, but in the, in the current market, quality meat is attracting a bit more money or cattle that can produce quality meat. So uh, it's been positive for us, not just the extra kilos, but a bit of value as well. I think it's, it's one of the great stories of Northern Australia over the last few years. I think the, um, the use of the, the Boss Indicus and, and Boss Taurus crosses, I think it's just a fantastic story. Now, before I Absolutely. leave the Northern industry, uh, Troy, the Ludwig export ban 2011, <laughs> the subsequent uh, successful court case against that action and awarding of damages, yet it goes on and on and on and on. You were around when this happened. What's your view of this extraordinary delay? Yeah, look, the unlawful decision of 2011 and the damage that went on, you know, direct economic through to 2015, uh, property loss and, and value of livestock losses and, and economic damage and then the relationship and stress damage that continues today with with our our customers but as well as you know people in northern Australia. I mean I know of two people that have lost their stations in northern Australia because of the twenty eleven decision that are basically still living in the in a horse trailer. I mean the offer of two hundred and fifteen million by the federal government is a start, but it's many times away from you know, getting anywhere near where the uh, where the actual damages were, and uh, we're going through the court process now, so I can't say too much. But uh, it'd be great to see the uh, the federal government uh, work with the industry to understand the real costs, and uh, and through that understanding, uh, work through a a quick outcome and solution. Because unfortunately, some people have passed away. And there's still people really, really suffering and uh, and can't can't make ends meet because of that decision in 2011. That's uh, that's now you know 12 years old, and we're still still working through it. It's an appalling situation, I think, from where I sit as a journalist watching these things uh, change over the years. Now, your property, Troy, you've got a carrying capacity according to your website, 300,000 head. Given yes. the official probability or possibility, the forecast of an El Nino, in your management skills and plans what does cpc have to cope with the likelihood or at least the possibility of an el nino look i think the first thing that we have in terms of working with an el nino is we've got a really good team of people from our you know, managers general managers and you know, down to ringers and you know, teams on the station we've got a great group of people we worked through the 2018-19 el nino very well and didn't decrease our herd size we're set up in regions to early wean, so we can wean down to 60 kilos um, and feed those calves and, and get the cows back out with less uh, pressure on them. 
our cattle are segregated up for, for pregnancy groups so that we don't have to do multiple handlings of, uh, of the cows. We've also been growing a fair bit of feed in, in northern Australia and, and hay and, and silage. So in the Northern Territory this year, we grew just shy of 50,000 tonnes of silage. The Lanina is a, a great wet year um, and we've also grown some cotton and, and quite a bit of hay in the Northern Territory and North Queensland. So we've got a fair bit of feed put away, which is unusual for Northern Australia to put, put that level of feed away. And then also in Indonesia, we maintain what I'd call sort of growing pens. So in drought years, Instead of sending feeder cattle up at, say, 350 kilos, Kerry, we sent them to Indonesia at 250 kilos and grown them for 100 days. So, But drought is what Australia has and does, um, but uh, none of us want it. No, I believe the bomb backed off on its uh, probability likelihood uh, a few days ago, so maybe that's good news. <laughs> Yeah, I hope I hope the bomb's right, and I hope the uh, the UN and the Northern American forecasters are all wrong. <laughs> Let's move to the carbon business. The CPUC is pretty keen on this because you see carbon credits as an opportunity. How involved is CPC in the carbon for money business? Look, we we first sold our some carbon emissions reductions in two thousand and fourteen at CPC through this Savannah Burning. Methodology. Some of the legislative uh, frameworks and powers of veto that uh, were uh, included in the legislation meant that we had to hand some of that carbon back because the legislation was and still is unworkable uh, for the Northern Territory and and big parts of Northern Australia. But we've been an active participant in the carbon herd method, uh, the beef cattle herd methodology, um, savanna burning, and we've registered some uh, human and natural uh, induced regeneration projects and, and they reward us for, for good management practice. So, you know, in, increasing cattle productivity, reducing mortality, you know, you know, reducing the emissions of the animals through just greater productivity and then managing fire, managing ground cover and and, uh, and canopy cover and is uh, we're being rewarded uh, rewarded for that, and and uh, we reinvest that money straight back into the business, which is uh, which is great. So the carbon business is already contributing to the bottom line for CPC. Yeah, it's it's a a, a real contributor to our bottom line. It, it's not our primary purpose. We're very clear that you know with ourselves and our team that our primary business is cattle and and cropping and and feed lotting. Um, but we absolutely believe in the opportunities for Australia and in uh, in carbon. Um, but you know, we're taking a very much a scientific approach to it and looking at it. How does it add value to our business, and how do we uh, look after our land better, rather than how do we destock our properties, or how do we how do we sort of you know go extreme on carbon? And you know, seeing cases of people buying properties and destocking the cattle and. And that has detrimental social implications for rural communities, and we would never want to to do that. Um, and we absolutely want to be in the food and fibre business first, but carbon will uh, will continue to grow, I think. Like a lot of companies, uh, Troy CPC has already always been big on training, especially for young graduates. How's the recruitment going at this level? Are you getting plenty of interest? Look, we're still getting plenty of interest from uh, from young people in particular. Um, we've got a, a great team and, and we've had some really good numbers of applications. Machinery operators and truck drivers, cooks that we compete probably head on with for mining and and industry uh, are a little bit harder to uh, to recruit into into northern Australia, but 
we've had um, you know had a, had a really good year, but our team put a lot of work into that. I think interesting, Kerry, seventy percent of our applications last year and this year for CPC were female, and this month where our very employee numbers fifty one percent are female and forty nine percent are male. So the the, the ladies have uh, have gone over the, over the guys, but we don't. We don't have any targets. Best person gets the job. Yeah. So that's meant that we you know, sit around 50, 50 male, female. Wonderful. Now, um, are these applicants from mostly are the science, ag science graduates, I guess, are they mostly <coughs> from the bush? Uh, a good mix, actually. We get a lot of uh, school leavers um, from the bush and then also from cities. And then same with, with graduates. They're, they're a real mix. Uh, I think agriculture is a lot more appealing. You know, I went to... Uh, at one of the universities the other day and, and spoke to some of the undergrads there and quite a few of them were saying they don't want to be stuck in an office, they don't want to be staring into a computer screen for the rest of their life and the appeal of, uh, of Northern Australia is uh, is really exciting for them. Yeah, and I think you know, we've Im- improved our connectivity and yeah. internet access and social programs and things like that. So it, it's not as lonely life in Northern Australia as what it once was. Some of those needed skills, uh, are, which are pretty obvious to most people, are, they're getting very attractive, aren't they? I heard recently the offering for an experienced feedlot manager, big six figures plus the usual perks. That's a, that's a handy recompense for doing that job, I would suspect. Yeah, absolutely. There's some, uh, there's some, you know, really good people uh, are, are worth every every dollar. So, so ag is becoming a sexy vocation again, maybe. That's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Now, a pet subject just about everywhere you look at present, artificial intelligence, AI as it's called. Do you expect AI to become part of the beef cattle industry? Yeah, I, I do, Kerry. I think yeah, we're seeing more automation in, in abattoirs. I think uh, as artificial intelligence and and better scanning and mapping of carcasses and then better data analytics, we'll see um Carcasses being broken down uh, even more with uh, automation, but also cut optimization for for different customers and different markets. I think that's where we'll see AI and automation first. I think AI is going to move into the genetic space and genomics very, very quickly and and speed up analysis. Um, I think we're a few years off you know, out in in sort of cattle production and particularly breeding, but. Yeah, we're seeing automated feed allocation in feedlots starting to come through. I know Morton Co. have been trialling a, a machine that, that assesses the feed and, and the livestock feeding and quite successfully. And and there are a lot of cropping operations now with auto steer and auto drive. And, and you know, this year at our, when with the cotton we picked, uh, we had some of the new pickers from the US from John Deere on trial and, and they were absolutely recording massive amounts of data that then will be run you know, for fertiliser applications and, and, uh, and soil management for next year and uh, I think it's, it's an exciting time. I'm glad you mentioned but, uh, you know, that. That was my next question about cotton. You're very keen on cotton in the Territory, aren't you? Yeah, it, it fits in with the cattle business really well. The cotton seed is is a really valuable product. It, to me, it's worth more than the cotton. Um, that high natural protein of, that's got still got good um, good vegetable oil in it is a magnificent seed for the cattle. And uh, the cotton is a, is a really good rotation crop uh, with grazing crops and uh, and forage crops and uh, and really good for controlling weeds. So now I'm a Big support of it. it creates a lot of local jobs as well. There's a new cotton gin in Catherine, one going to go in in Kununurra, and that's uh, that's exciting to see real 
real modern jobs uh, coming into northern Australia. What's the time frame for that gin in Catherine? Uh, should be open um, by the end of this year. I, I don't just speak on their behalf, but we're holding bales back yeah. or modules back to, to gin, hopefully October, November this year. Troy, I can't let you go without mention of your, one of your pet charities, Dolly's Dream. A few months back, it was actually Do It For Dolly Day. How was it and what was the result? Look, Do It For Dolly Day was really successful again. Um, the team does a, does a great job. We got some great community support. We had 197 million interactions um, around Do It For Dolly Day with people. So it's 197 million people interacted that some people interacted multiple times, and we also got uh, interactions offshore, even though we don't really target offshore. Um, we had about 4.5 million social media interactions in Australia, which was great. Um, but, you know, there was 5,000 school children um, completed the online kindness workshop. We do those throughout the year, and they're available all the time, but just around the Dolly, Do It For Dolly's days, 5,000 school kids were trained about cyber safety and, and trained about caring for each other and uh, and looking out for each other, which was uh, which was great. Our video had over a million individual people in Australia watch it, and uh, we got mentioned in the media twenty two and a half thousand times uh, for Do It For Dolly Day with uh, TV, radio, print, and online. So there was a a huge following. And you know, one of the things that was exciting to see, and I, I saw in Brisbane, there was 45 buildings and bridges across Australia that were lit up in blue uh, for Do It For Dolly Day. So that was, uh, was some uh, some really cool stuff. And 90 MPs got behind us. So the Tick and Kate and uh, and Meg and the, and yeah. from the Everett family and then the, the rest of the Do It For Dolly team um, have, uh, have done an amazing job. Can you remind listeners who may not have heard, there only be a few I suspect, uh, may not have heard about Dolly, uh, tell us briefly the Dolly story, which is all about bullying and especially cyberbullying. Absolutely. So Dolly took her, her own life uh, a few years ago after relentless online bullying and and, uh, and social media bullying. Um, she was actually home on, on school holidays. So you'd think a, a young girl from the bush um, <clears throat> being at home for Christmas holidays would get respite from from school bullying and, and boarding school bullying. It actually you know, kicked up a gear because of social media and because of uh, children not knowing their impacts and parents not really understanding what their children were up to. And unfortunately, Dolly uh, chose to take her, her own life. Um, she couldn't handle it anymore. And, and out of that absolute tragedy, Tick and Kate have, uh, have put together a, a foundation and, uh, and with the, the aim of working hands-on with, with students and, and young people, but also parents and teachers around uh, the impact of bullying and, uh, and harassment, both online and, and physically, and, and that's how detrimental it is to people. And we get, we're getting some great support, particularly from rural communities, and, and that's really our, our heart and our base is, is farmers and, uh, and rural communities. Listeners can find a lot more detail of Dolly's Dream on the net. Just Google the words, do it for Dolly, and that will get you to yep. the website. Troy Setter, CEO of CPC, a great pleasure to have you again on The Girl on behalf of Beef Central. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Kerry. Thank you for joining me today. If you have a question or topic you'd like discussed on The Weekly Grill, email theweeklygrill at beefcentral.com. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Girl brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis.